welcome to a new weekly podcast series called USERF Spotlight, hosted by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent federal advisory body. During each episode, Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, features a special guest to dive deeper on various topics and breaking developments that impact the universal right to freedom of religion or belief around the globe. Welcome to USERV Spotlight. I'm Dwight Bashir. Today, we're going to discuss recent developments in Saudi Arabia, uh, which the commission once again recommended as a country of particular concern in our 2021 annual report for its systematic, ongoing, and egregious uh, religious freedom violations. Last week, we published a new report on Saudi Arabia that highlighted some progress uh, on religious freedom, uh, but primarily paints an ongoing uh, concerning picture for religious freedom conditions in the country. Now, the Biden administration has indicated it intends to recalibrate the U.S.-Saudi relationship, a policy that has seen recent attention in the wake of the three-year anniversary of the killing of U.S.-based journalist Jamal Khashoggi on October 2nd. 2018. In fact, just over the weekend, Secretary of State Antony Blinken released a statement on the anniversary of the Khashoggi killing and recommitted uh, the United States to advocating on behalf of activists, dissidents, and journalists. And when so far as to say that human rights is at the center of our foreign policy, to reiterate uh, what has already been said. And we also know just last week, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan visited Saudi Arabia and reportedly discussed human rights issues uh, with uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. For its part, as I mentioned, Saudi Arabia has made some reforms to select policies impacting religious freedom, including improvements to its textbooks, a longstanding issue for the commission. But what do these initiatives really mean for the overall climate uh, for religious freedom in the country that impacts Saudi citizens on the ground? To answer this and other questions today, we have with us USERF Supervisory Policy Analyst Scott Weiner, who covers Saudi Arabia and other countries in the region for the commission. Welcome back, Scott. Thanks so much, Dwight. Scott's also the author of this new report that I mentioned uh, on Saudi Arabia. Uh, so to start us off, uh, Scott, what are some of USERF's most pressing concerns related to religious freedom conditions in the kingdom? So overall, Saudi Arabia has made some meaningful reforms to advance religious freedom, but there are several deeply rooted issues that are still undermining the credibility of some of the country's claims to be undertaking serious reform. So, for example, non-Muslim communities may not construct houses of worship. Um, these communities can worship privately, at least uh, in theory, but many are still afraid to do so in practice as a result of earlier harassment in previous years by the religious police and the government. Shia Muslims in Saudi Arabia also face systematic discrimination in employment, education, and in the judiciary. Um, and the government has placed restrictions on religious Ashura gatherings, including this year in 2021, while not restricting similar non-religious gatherings on the basis of COVID-19. Um, Shia have also been blamed uh, for bringing COVID-19 into Saudi Arabia, and there's been very little government response to claims by people in the media that people who've come from uh, Iran to Saudi Arabia, the Shia who've returned from Iran bringing COVID are equivalent to ISIS suicide bombers. So again, some meaningful, meaningful reforms have taken place, but overall it still is a really concerning picture for religious freedom in Saudi Arabia. 
Now, a section of your report uh, focuses on religious prisoners of conscience, a big focus of the commission, uh, those of which are detained in uh, Saudi Arabia by the government. Now, can you tell our audience who these prisoners are, why many of them are languishing in prisons, in some cases for years, and, and why it's such a point of concern from an international religious freedom perspective? So it's a concern because essentially it represents the government detaining people on the basis of their religious beliefs, and especially with the COVID-19 pandemic, which has spread in prisons throughout the world, there's an elevated risk not only of contracting COVID-19, but even potentially of death. Again, as a result of of someone expressing religious beliefs that they're entitled to do under international law. So in the Saudi context, the government continues to persecute Muslims uh, who don't ascribe to its singular interpretation of Sunni Islam. So these include Shia Muslims that I've already sort of mentioned, but also members of dissident Sunni groups like the Sahwa movement who've had several members in prison. And in addition, four members of the Bahra Shia community also remain detained on charges of money laundering for raising funds to send community members on the pilgrimage, on the Hajj. It's becoming increasingly difficult for their family members to have regular phone contact with them. And the prisoners who remain detained are all in high risk categories for COVID-19. So we're particularly concerned about those detained Bora Shia. Other religious dissidents include, of course, members of our Religious Prisoners of Conscience Project here at USERF. Um, those include Raif Badawi and his lawyer, Walid Abu Al-Khair. So Mr. Badawi ran a blog called Free Saudi Liberals, where he made some criticisms of religion and the government. As a result, the short version of the story is that he was ultimately sentenced to 10 years in prison, a million real fine, and a thousand whiplashes, although not all of those have actually been carried out. So both uh, Rife and his lawyer, Walid, have been thrown into solitary confinement during their detention, and they faced uh, mistreatment in prison. We're also really concerned by reports Rife may have been the subject of an attempted assassination last year. And we've also spoken out when he was denied access to his books and also crucial medicine for managing uh, an important medical condition that he has. There's also several religious clerics the Saudi government has detained. These include people like uh, Sheikh Salman al-Odeh, Sheikh Mohammed al-Habib, and a scholar named Hassan Farhan al-Maliki, who all remain in prison on the basis of their beliefs. Al-Maliki has had several consecutive hearings. The government has just announced hearing after hearing after hearing, and this happened again last week. He has a hearing now scheduled again for the end of October. So there hasn't really been movement on his case. The government sort of kicked the can down the road. Um, several activists who've protested religious guardianship laws are also in prison. And these um, include a number of people who, again, have engaged in peaceful expression of their religious beliefs. Those who've been released are under travel and media bans in lots of cases. And one of the common denominators for all of these cases is the Saudi uh, Specialized Criminal Court. We're really concerned by the way the Saudi government is using this court to restrict people's rights on the basis of religion. And finally, Saudi Arabia, to its credit, commuted the death sentences of several Shia prisoners who were arrested after participating in protests in the majority Shia Eastern province back in 2011. That being said, we are gravely concerned by the execution uh, back in June of a Shia man named Mustafa Darwish in, uh, again, in June in 2021. Based on the court documents, 
Uh, we believe it's highly likely Mr. Darwish was likely a minor when he is alleged to have committed his crimes. And so it's very difficult to look at some of the claims that Saudi Arabia has committed to serious religious freedom reforms, when at the same time, we're seeing evidence that there is this kind of systematic and severe repression of the Shia religious community. Yeah, so it sounds like there's quite a range uh, uh, that, you know, some of which would fit that definition of dissidence, as we hear from the Secretary of State uh, about that recommitment to advocating uh, for dissidents and others uh, from, from Shia Muslims to those who disagree with the government interpretation to those who advocate against the guardian system, system etc., and, and of course, when we talk about these issues and when we talk about concerns of Saudi Arabia, the conversation often comes back to the Saudi crown prince, uh, of course, in re recent years, uh, because of his role in assuming the de facto leadership. And, and again, to his credit, he's uh, taken steps to diminish the power of Saudi Arabia's religious authorities, uh, including uh, the vaunted Committee to Promote Virtue and Prevent Vice, also known as the Religious uh, Police. Scott, can you tell us if there are other positive developments that you're seeing so far in 2021? Sure. So I think it's absolutely right that the 2016 decree from the Crown Prince did meaningfully limit the power of the religious police. And over the past few years, we have seen the Saudi government grant women specific abilities that they had previously been denied under the guardianship system. So these include things like the ability to obtain passports and to conduct the pilgrimage, the Hajj, without a male guardian. There was also an amendment a couple months ago in 2021 to the law of procedure before Sharia courts, which now says that women can live where they want and guardians can only report these women to the state if there's evidence she committed a crime. Now, this isn't a formal law or decree, but it does indicate that there's room for change within the Saudi judicial and legal establishment. In the past, the Saudi government has sometimes pointed to the more conservative religious establishment as evidence that it can't engage in some of these reforms. So we're now seeing a bit of a shift in that tone to say that actually there are some places where some of these policies can be shifted in order to bring Saudi Arabia closer to meeting its obligations under international law. Um, there was also a recent report from a group called Impact SE, which found that there was significant improvement to the latest round of Saudi textbooks. This is an issue that USERP has monitored for close to 20 years. And while these textbooks still have some very problematic or intolerant passages with regards to non-Muslims or, or non-Sunni Muslims, um, there have been some, some significant points of improvement. So entire lessons on violent jihad have been removed. And in other places, the language about non-Muslims reflects meaningful improvement. There are also some places where intolerant language still exists, but was softened a little bit. So to say that some Christians and Jews rejected defined books and uh, falsified or hid away some of what Allah had sent down, as opposed to saying that all Christians and Jews have done it. So you know, the, the spirit of intolerance is still kind of there, but there has sort of been this nominal shifting or softening of that language. So we are overall in Saudi Arabia seeing a shift of power away from religious authority. I think the question, though, is where that power has been shifted. It looks as if at the moment it's been shifted to the government, but international law envisions freedom of religion or belief as an individual right that belongs to people. So it's not a privilege that's granted by the state. It's a right that people have inherently under international law. Um, I think what would make this 
a bit more clear from the Saudi government's perspective is to articulate more explicitly its ultimate vision for reform, for promoting religious freedom. So there's reform, there are changes happening, but what are these changes in the service of, and what does a Saudi Arabia that provides freedom of religion or belief look like in the vision of the Saudi government in vision 2030? And also to be really clear about some of the key performance indicators that exist for economic metrics to have indicators for religious freedom metrics as well, so that it's easier to assess whether or not the end reform will be sufficient to align Saudi Arabia with this obligation under international law to provide individual freedom of religion or belief. So, you know, to, depending on who you're talking to, it sounds like some would say two steps forward, one step back. Others might say one step forward, two steps back, because it is a mixed picture for sure. Um, in your report, Scott, uh, you do also tackle uh, uh, an issue that we alluded to uh, on the guardianship system, uh, something uh, that some people don't understand why USURF uh, covers it. We've, we've been covering the guardianship system and reported on it for years. Can you tell our audience why we consider it uh, the uh, a religious freedom issue and, and how impactful are some of these recent reforms uh, that they've made to the guardianship system? Sure. So um, religious guardianship is based on the Saudi government's unique interpretation of Islam and a few different concepts of guardianship that exist within that particular interpretation. The effect that that interpretation has is to position women as legal minors for life and require a man to approve of many legal decisions that she would otherwise make on her own. So it's the government endorsing a specific interpretation of religion, that's number one. And number two, this process denies individual women in Saudi Arabia the ability to determine their own faith practices, to say, I assent to guardianship and to this interpretation, or I assent to some other kind of interpretation. That's a choice that isn't being given to Saudi women that they should be able to have under international law and freedom of religion or belief. So the effect of the guardianship system is that it allows men in Saudi Arabia to use state resources to return a woman to her home. And that can be the case even if she's subject to intimate partner violence. So when there's a conflict between that woman and a male guardian, the state sides with the male guardian. And this has allowed for the Saudi government to create several loopholes to some of the reforms that exist. So I mentioned before that women over 21 in Saudi Arabia can now obtain passports and travel abroad without a guardian's permission. However, the guardian can file a charge of absence from the home with the state, and the state uh, can then deploy its resources to bring that woman back home. So she can leave, but she can also be forcibly brought back. So that really kind of conditions the actual amount of freedom that women have as a result of these reforms. Again, many people, men and women alike, who've protested the guardianship system peacefully have been thrown in prison in Saudi Arabia. Many have been subjected to extreme mistreatment by Saudi prison authorities. Um, one of the more prominent of these cases is Lujain al-Hathloul. She's been released from prison, but she She's still subject to a travel and a media ban, and that severely restricts her ability to express her beliefs about religious guardianship. So a lot to obviously uh, take in here and to and to realize it's, it's become more of a complicated picture. Um, as you know, in Washington, there's an ongoing bipartisan uh, <clears throat> discussion about the future of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Uh, including uh, on Capitol Hill in, in the U.S. Congress in, in a bipartisan way. 
What uh, does USERF, tell our audience here what, uh, what we recommend uh, that the United States can do to advance uh, greater religious freedom conditions in Saudi Arabia at this time? So USERF has a bunch of recommendations, but I'll focus on three in particular. So firstly, obviously, redesignating Saudi Arabia as a country of particular concern pursuant to the International Religious Freedom Act. But Beyond that, lifting the national security waiver that the State Department has placed on Saudi Arabia. So this waiver essentially shields the Saudi government from any sanctions or any action to which it otherwise would be subject under the International Religious Freedom Act. So it essentially gives the Saudi government a free pass and allows it to avoid any sort of accountability for the systematic, ongoing, and egregious violations of religious freedom. So it's an interesting concept that this is positioned as a national security waiver. And ultimately, USERF appreciates that there's a large bilateral relationship between the US and Saudi Arabia. That relationship is really important. Security concerns are kind of first and foremost in that relationship. At the same time, allowing greater religious freedom in Saudi Arabia improves security because it creates space for nonviolent expression. It makes otherwise marginalized at-risk individuals feel heard, and it creates future opportunities for engagement that pull people away from a path of violent radicalization. So security and promoting religious freedom are not at odds with each other. They actually work together, especially in this case. Secondly, USERF supports visa bans and targeted sanctions on high-level Saudi officials who are complicit in religious freedom violations. The Biden administration, I think, as you mentioned earlier, Dwight, created specific visa ban authorities, the Khashoggi bans. Um, these are based on other Saudi human rights violations. But USERF believes that these and other mechanisms can be really useful in holding accountable Saudi and other officials who are involved in targeting religious and political dissidents abroad. So providing that deterrence and accountability mechanism is really important. Um, for its part, Congress can continue to hold hearings to highlight the Saudi government's violations of religious freedom, to highlight the cases of religious prisoners of conscience and really continue to signal the bipartisan appetite for a recalibration of the U.S.-Saudi relationship to more explicitly and directly center human rights generally, but religious freedom specifically, and make clear that a future stable and mutually beneficial U.S.-Saudi relationship has to include the promotion of religious freedom as a component for its success. Well, we'll have to leave it right here, but uh, let me thank uh, Supervisory Policy Analyst Scott Weiner for joining us today and, and uh, going deeper on uh, the situation in Saudi Arabia and putting forward some of our key recommendations for U.S. policy. <clears throat> you can find uh, his new Saudi Arabia country update and all our reporting and the full set of uh, recommendations for U.S. policy on our website at www.uscirf. Gov. As always, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on USERV Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F.gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at USCIRF. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.